And uh, last week, one of the things that we saw about this new city that God is building is that there was not a need among them. That's what defines this city or what ought to define this city, that we are a community that swallows up need because God's here. This week, we're going to look at this, this word called koinonia. Because koinonia is at the heart of the city that God's building. And we're going to do it more topically. Topical sermons are so hard for me. Uh, it's why I love to just kind of preach through. Because I feel like I've got to get the whole counsel of God and then try to make sense of it. But bear with me on this. The main texts that we're going to look at are Acts 2, 42 and 47. Let's turn there now. Then over to Acts 4, we'll read some verses, and then John 17. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, I love this, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now let's turn over to Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 31. I wish we could read even the verses preceding this, but it says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. <laughs> shaken, all right? Just shaken by God to shake the world with gospel boldness. Okay, so you got Pentecost all over again, the new mountain. Here's the new ministry. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There was no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and was distributed to anyone as he had need. This is God's word for now. You can be seated. Stuff's really hard to imagine. Um... And I think the word that really describes what, we've, what we see there, and what we see there really is a movement. I mean, the wind is blowing through this community of people, but the word is koinonia. It's the Greek word for fellowship. Fellowship just doesn't do it for me. For some reason, I think of church basements and potlucks and people just sitting around, stale coffee and plastic. I mean, <laughs> anyway, I'll stop now, but... The text does describe this word koinonia. Several times it says they were together. 
whether it's in homes, in the temple. Um, Acts 4 says that they're one in heart, they're one in mind. There's this deep sense of weeness, this deep sense of oneness. And this is the text way to describe koinonia. But really, koinonia isn't something you know unless you've experienced it. Koinonia is not a program. Koinonia is not an institution. Koinonia is not a welfare system. Koinonia is not a politic. People have tried to make koinonia all these things. But what's described here at the heart of the whole deal is relationship. It's deep, intense, relational connection leading to oneness. Where a community of people are sharing and doing life at the deepest level. Allowing for things like this. I think people are set free in this kind of context to be real. Where people are experiencing just this intense joy of knowing and being known. Of loving and being loved. Of being needy and meeting needs. This is koinonia. I feel like I've experienced a little bit of it in my lifetime. I feel like I experienced it in my family growing up. In many ways, my family would uh, just be like, holy cow, what's going on here? I mean, we just let it all out. There wasn't a game played in my family. There was hardly a secret. And we, I learned from being a part of this family, namely from my dad, and probably this is what typifies it a little bit. I mean, he was a white-collar worker. Every night we ate around the table. And uh, <laughs> the thing that I remember most about my dad is two things. Number one, him sitting around in his tidy whities <laughs> and, and, and really, I know that's weird. And if he were here right now, I wouldn't say it, okay? I'd probably respect him a little bit more. Um, <laughs> but that's how we were. We didn't care. And the tears my dad cried every time he prayed. It's koinonia. I feel like it's something that I've experienced with my college friends. I mean, we were, we were brothers. And we did life together. And we shared life. And to this day, um, even though I don't see him but one time a year, every time I'm with him, it's just like, holy cow, do I love these guys. And those guys love me. It's one of the safest places in the world for me. The place I've most experienced it would be in my own marriage. I mean, marriage is two best friends doing life together. And the thing with, 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 with koinonia, it doesn't mean that there's not fights. It doesn't mean that there aren't struggles. But what I've experienced in my marriage to Libby is this intense experience of knowing and being known, of loving and being loved, of being free to be completely vulnerable, to say anything and do anything, to be naked and unashamed. In fact, koinonia is a word the, Greek used, the Greeks used for sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. It's this kind of oneness. Now, I was also mindful of one of my favorite movies this week, Lord of the Rings. And there's a scene in the last movie that I think defines 
what koinonia is as good as anything. And it's at the end. It's, it's when Frodo is in Rivendell. He's lying in bed. And the ring has been defeated. Mordor has been defeated. Evil has been defeated. And, and as he sits there or lays there in that bed, do you remember the scene? All of a sudden, his community enters. And there's Gandalf. And then there's Miriam Pippin, and they're like jumping all over them, and, and they're hugging each other. And, and one by one, they just keep coming in. And then all of a sudden, I mean, it brings me to tears every time I see it. Sam Wise, who's just been by that, guy, by that guy's side, they've been through, through so much, his face just enters. And they just look at each other. No words. Because no words can describe the explosion of love that those two feel for each other. It's koinonia. It's what defined the early church. My question, does it define us? I think some of the things that I've heard over my 20 years of ministry, and these are painful things. I, I especially was thinking this week of just nine years of giving my life to, to high school and junior high students and how many from that generation says, you know what, I want nothing to do with God because of all the fighting I see in the church. Let's add another scriptural piece to this. Go to John 17. This is just before Jesus is arrested. And let's start at verse 20. This is called the high priestly prayer because Jesus as a high priest is is praying for himself, he's praying for his disciples, and then finally, he's praying for us, the church that would come out of the faith of the disciples. And his prayer for us begins at verse 20. And this is what he prays. My prayer is not for them alone. That's a reference to the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me. That's powerful. I gave them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. As Jesus is about to die, I love it, he has you and me on his mind He's praying for us, and there are so many things that Jesus could pray, but he prays one thing for our oneness. 
And this is an even deeper and more intense expression of koinonia. Because it's not oneness as we know oneness. But it's the oneness that Jesus has with the Father. He's saying, I want them to have the same oneness. I want them to have that kind of unity. They would love each other. Now, it would be tempting right now to run to, how do we do this? But I want to ask this question. Why is this so important to Jesus? Why is this the make it or break it thing and not right doctrine is as important as that is or right living as, a, as important as that is? Why? Because unity and oneness and koinonia is at the heart of who God is. God is what? He's a trinity. Now, we don't like to talk about it much because it's like the moment you open your mouth on talking about the trinity, you're probably going to be a heretic. Because it's such a difficult thing to describe. But the way that I like to describe it, because the Bible definitely teaches it from cover to cover, that you need to think of God as being three-dimensional. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each dimension of God is so uniquely perfect that it is its own distinct person. And not only this, but the relationship of each dimension to the other is also so perfect, so beautiful, that we can say, three persons, one God. And so God is a community within himself. So when Christianity says God, it's saying relationship, it's saying community, it's saying koinonia amongst the Trinity. Their relationship is one of perfect love. It's the highest expression of koinonia. It's of selflessly and continually bringing glory and praise to the other. The Father glorifies the Son and the Spirit. The Son glorifies the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. Dan Mike gave me a book this week that I've been reading about this a little bit. And uh, the author of this book is C. Baxter Kruger. And he says this. He says this about the Trinity. He says the doctrine of the Trinity means this. It means that relationship, that fellowship or koinonia, that togetherness and sharing, that self-giving and other-centeredness are not afterthoughts with God, but the deepest truth about the being of God. And he goes on, he says this. The Father is not consumed with himself because he loves the Son and the Spirit. And the Son is not riddled with narcissism because he loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is not preoccupied with himself and his own glory. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And then he writes this. He says, giving, not taking. Other-centeredness, not self-centeredness. Sharing, not hoarding, are what fires the rockets of God and lie at the very center of God's existence as Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's, it's just right into who God is. Or C.S. Lewis. 
he speaks of the Trinity as the great dance. He says it's the great dance of divine harmony and beauty, symmetry, unity, creativity, and power exploding in divine ecstasy and joy. Now, for some of you, it's just like, whoa, what, what did he just say? Well, that's C.S. Lewis, but maybe this help, will help you out a little bit more. He says, all pleasures that we have ever known on earth are but early hints of the movements of that dance. The dance becomes even greater than any pleasure we've ever known, beyond pleasure, lost in the music of the hymn of the universe, caught up in the music of the spheres, slipping through all the dimensions of the cosmos, wrinkling time and warping space. The dance is none other than union with God. And you know the biggest need of your, of your life tonight? It's to be in the dance. In the community of the Trinity. In fact, the whole reason why God made the universe, the reason why God made us, is so that we could be in the dance. I mean, you can almost hear God say it at some point in time. Hey, let's not hoard this thing for ourselves. Let's share it. Let's create. Let's make beings who can experience this this, this koinonia that we enjoy and this oneness, this all-satisfying relationship in the community of the Trinity. That's why we're made in God's image. That's why we're made in his likeness. That's why we are little replicas of God. It's so that we can be invited into what people call the Godhead, into the community of the Trinity, and experience all-satisfying This is what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden, walking with God in the cool of the day. It's what's lost in the Garden of Eden because sin destroyed this, sin infected, sin stained, sin disqualified, sin alienated us from God. Of course, we probably know this, but I love the, the, the net result of all that is what? What does it say about Adam and Eve when they lost all this? What'd they do? They hid and people have been hiding ever since. Hiding from God, hiding from each other, not able to give love, not able to receive love, not able to know or be known, resulting in loneliness, narcissism, despairing living. And I think that all people want to do today is rather than get this back, is just medicate the pain of hiding. And there are so many ways you can do that. Listen to the words of John 17, verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. <laughs> Listen to these words. May they be in us. Do you know that? I'm not saying cognitively. I'm asking, do you know that experientially? Being in God. Being in the dance. Being in the community of the Trinity. 
See, sin banned us from this community, but the gospel reopens the door and it invites us back in. It shows us the way back into God. Read 2 Corinthians 5. It talks about how we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come, and how God is reconciling us to himself. This is why the Bible uses words like adoption. Because we are adopted back into God as sons and daughters. That's why the Bible uses metaphors like vine and branches. Because like a branch is in the vine, we're in him. And he in us. In fact, my favorite, we all have our favorites, is Colossians 3. Just, you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. <laughs> this stuff is, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's mind-boggling. What I'm talking about tonight is paradise. But it says, since you've been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now listen, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Where's Jesus in these verses? Or where's Jesus right now? He's at God's right hand. What about us? Where are we right now? See, we need to know this. If you have trusted Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, yes, you're, you're, you're seated in a, in a chair right now like this, but you're seated in the heavenly places. Right now. And your life is hidden with Christ. You're in the dance. You're in the community of the Trinity. And some of you are thinking, what, 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 what's so great about this? I mean, do I really need this? God made you for this. Augustine said it so well. God, God, God made us for himself. God made us to be in, in, in the heavenly places, in the community of the Trinity, and our souls, they're restless unless they rest there. And so you're never going to find the thing that your soul craves, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or Facebooking, job, career, Making money, making a name for yourself. As Greg says all the time, these things are only just a ripoff. But not only this, just think about this for a second. To be hidden in Christ is the exact opposite of Adam hiding in the bushes in the garden. And some of you live your life hiding. You're scared. You're scared of being found out. 
You're scared of not measuring up. You live your life playing this silly game of pretend. Pretending to be something that you're not. For those of us who are hid in Christ and seated in the heavenlies, we no longer have to hide. Because when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, he became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. In fact, the Bible speaks of this as as being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So when God turns and looks at us, what he sees is an absolute beauty because he sees us as he sees his own son. We're clothed and hid in Christ. And so I'll take this one to the scene of Sam Wise and Frodo. That's how God looks at you. With that kind of affection, just exploding with love. Have you trusted him? Do you live a life of Colossians 3 where you set your mind and heart on him? Are you in the dance? Are you in the community of the Trinity? Do you see how your, your life is hidden, Christ? How you're seated in the heavenlies? I can't tell you that when I get these tinges of insecurity or little fears pop into my mind and heart, I'll tell you, my mind runs there. When I start to feel like I don't measure up, when I start to feel criticisms and you get the emails, my heart, it just, it runs there. I'm hidden with Christ. I'm seated in the heavenlies. Because when we live there, when we set our mind on that, I'm telling you what it allows. It gives us freedom, nothing but freedom. Freedom to be real. Freedom to know and be known. Freedom to love and to be loved. Freedom to be vulnerable. Freedom to be weak. Free to pour our lives in other people and have other people pour their lives into us. Even a freedom of failure. Free to have my business go belly up. Why? I'm seated in the heavenlies. I'm, I'm hidden in Christ. Free from worry. Free from anxiety. Free from what other people think about you. Free from just hanging on so tightly to stuff. You know this freedom? This is why we are made right here. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you probably know that we have a pretty big vision around here because we want to see the kingdom of God advance in power. But listen, we will never reach our world for Christ. We will never be the city of God transforming the city of man. If Jesus' prayer in John 17 isn't realized here. My prayer, says Jesus, is that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, in us. And here comes the the, the massive purpose so that the world may believe.
And the prayer goes on. It says, may they be one as we are one. May they be brought to complete unity so that the world may know me and that you sent me and that you love them even as you love me. And I feel like this is just consistent. I feel like John 13 is, is just giving more commentary about these verses. When Jesus says these words, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by your loving of one another, the way that I loved you, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so... What is our proof to the world that the Christian thing is for real? It's our love for each other. It's as a community, by the way we treat each other, by the way we forgive each other, by the way we serve each other, by the way we love one another, it's this koinonia that they see running through the veins of this body. This is how we will tell the world that God is for real. And here's the thing. I think we understand this piece. We understand that Jesus came to die for sins. But he came to do more than this. He came to die for sins so that he could get us back into the community of the Trinity. And I want us to also hear this, so he could also create that community in the heavenly realms down here on earth. In which he would dwell, so that the world would know God is real. Let me end by applying this in two ways. Number one, if you are not in community, the kind of community described, you're not in church. If you are not in relationship with brothers and sisters of Christ where you know and are known, where you love and are loved, where you give your life away and receive from the lives of others, if you're not experiencing this right now, you're not in the church. Let me push this further. When the Bible says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, the temple is what, according to this verse? Well, it's the place where God lives. But the you is not singular. The you is plural, meaning this, God lives in us. God lives in this community. And I think you could make a biblical argument that said something like, he lives in you to the extent that you are in this community. I'll tell you what, I know that one from experience. And that's not to say I don't 
experience the individual experience of God in my own life through seeking him. But I'm telling you, I also get tons of God from this community and being in community with this community. Number two. Let me ask this question. Are you in any way contributing to disunity, whether it's through sarcasm, holding a grudge, slander, gossip, a revengeful heart, a refusal to forgive, which I think is the root of all those things. You're not only hurting yourself with any one of these qualities or realities, you're hurting Christ. Christ. Because this community is called his body, and you hurt any member. When you hurt any member of this body, it's like you're punching Jesus right in the face. We're the hands, we're the feet, we're the arms, we're the legs, we're the head. You hurt anyone here through gossip or slander or a refusal to forgive or unresolved anger, you're hurting Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 says this, Do you not know you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Listen, that's us as a community. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Meaning this, if you and I hurt God's temple, God's body, the place where he dwells in any way, God will destroy us because he loves his body, he loves his bride, he loves his church. He suffered for it, he died for it, he lives in it so that the world may know him. And hurting God's body, this community, by creating disunity and division or hurting people through slander and gossip or refusal to forgive which is at the root of all these sins. There must not even be a hint of these things. And when there is, they must be rooted out and repented of. I mean, read Psalm 133, and you will see how much God loves unity and how God will bestow his blessing upon people who live in unity. And so all these things, namely unforgiveness, is not optional in the body of Jesus because forgiveness is at the heart of God. Therefore, it must be at the heart of every disciple. Forgiveness must be at the heart of this community. I mean, what is the gospel? The gospel is about God reconciling us to himself. It's reconciling a relationship that we broke. 
fact, the only reason why you and I are in the dance is because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, leaves the dance. The Son leaves the bosom of the Father so that we can have it. The Son loses the community of the Trinity to invite us back and show us the way back into it. And why did God do this? He loves us with an everlasting love. Now from the words of Jesus, love one another, become one, live together in unity so that the world may know I'm real. Is God placing someone on your heart? Is God convicting you? Is he calling you to do something? Be reconciled. Let's pray. God, we pray for your church. And God, I just want to start, Lord, by confessing my own sin, Lord, because you have been convicting me, Lord, of things I have said and even certain actions that have caused hurt and maybe even division in your body. And Lord, I want to confess those things. I want to repent of those things. And God, as was prayed even before we open your word tonight, Lord, is let's not just be hearers of your word, but let's, let's be doers of your word. And God, what would happen if, if, if every person in, in this room right now would just would listen to the things that you have to say, that we would hear your word, and then as your spirit lays other things in your heart for us to do, that we become doers of your word. And so, Jesus, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to lead to specific action, maybe even tonight and this week, that would bring about unity in the church so that the world may know that you're real.